I hear the Bibles coming out. It's a sweet sound to my ear. As we turn now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of James in chapter 2? And we'll be here soon in just a moment in James chapter 2. And before we read, hmm, would you please pray with me? Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so as you said in, our, in your word, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Make that true of us. Would you make us alive now to hear these things? Open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe that we might be changed by you. And we ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. We have quite a number of verses to take up uh, this morning. This is James in chapter 2. I'll begin here in verse 14 and read here through the end of the chapter. So James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of God. Now, we find in this section that we've just read here the most famous line in James that faith apart from works is dead. And that's a really big sentence for being such a small sentence. We know that all scripture all scripture is breathed out by God. And even though there, these are words from a human author in one sense, this is also the very voice of God. 
And because it's from God, all scripture, every nook, every cranny, every, every corner of the scriptures are profitable for us. That is, they're beneficial for us as Christians. They are for our good. But not all scripture benefits us in the same way. So some scripture is rest for a weary soul. Some are encouraging. We know that James is largely wisdom literature, so he lives in the realm of, of practice. But for me, there are still some verses throughout James that are, that are just rest. They strike my heart that way. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who re remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Ah. And also in chapter 4, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. That's a rest for me. It's a benefit to know I'm drawn to the Lord in that way. Some scriptures, however, feel less restful. They are, they are warning us in, uh, against the dangers of sin. Also, in James, we see verses like this one. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you won't be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Or this one. In chapter 4, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verses like these are a benefit to us too. They still draw us to the Lord, but in a very different way. Now, there's lots of different things the scriptures do, but some, many, especially in James, are teaching us doctrinal truths on which we base our lives. So these truths then give us the benefit of standing on solid rock, a stable place, not just the shifting sand of, of sin. So some of these truths that the scripture teaches us are, are simpler, at least to say. So, so simple truths like God is love. Simple truth. God is good. Simple truth. God is one. Simple, I guess, in some ways. But other truths in Scripture are, are, are a little less simple. They make us work for them, and so we should remember when we bump into something that's a little less simple that there's still great benefit. These are the things of God. This is the very voice of God in our ears and in our hearts. So it's worth reaching for them. These are, these are pearls worth selling all that we have to gain. So this text is one of those less simple truths. Parts of it sound simple enough. You know, it's at least tidy to be able to say faith without works is dead. But the meaning of that is a little less simple. The exact relationship between faith and works has been hotly discussed for centuries. It's clear that faith 
and works are inseparable. Faith and works are inseparable. No one denies that. But we still need to, in, to, to unpack exactly how faith and works are related, how they unfold together as inseparable. So I realized in preparing for this sermon that, that this text, even though it's kind of one bundle, there's just too much here to fit all in one sermon. My desk this week just looked like a mess with all my scribbles and scratches. So, so I, you know, at first I thought, oh, we'll try for one sermon. And, and, and I could do it, I think, fit it all in one sermon if I took you know, Paul's approach in Acts where he preaches all day and into the night. Uh, but not only would that make us a little, uh, you know, hungry, that's also the same time when, you know, that young guy Eutychus fell, fell asleep and fell out the window and died and Paul had to bring him back to life. And, I, I, you know, I'd prefer just not to have to do that. Uh, so if you feel sleepy, lean away from the window, please. Uh, I've, I've decided, you know, I don't need all day, but to split this text into two Sundays. Uh, just so we can try to get more of what's going on. I expect that there'll be a, be a bit of overlap. Next Sunday won't be the same. There'll be a lot, a lot that's different, but it's okay to hear some of the same things again. It was difficult for me, though, to know exactly how to split this uh, text up. James here has given us one idea, so it's not part one and part two. We're really looking at this one idea from two angles. So I think my approach, or what I'm going to try to do with the Lord's help, here's the two weeks. First, this, we're going to look, well, we're going to look at living faith and dead faith. Those will be the two angles, living faith and dead, we, uh, dead faith. So next week, Lord willing, we'll address the living faith part, especially with the emphasis on justification, what's going on here at the, the later verses in this text. This week, we're addressing dead faith. I'm sure that's what you were hoping for when you came this Sunday. Please, preacher, teach us about dead faith. But uh, that's, that's where we're going today. Now, to get us there, the overarching issue in this part of James' letter is not the question of whether faith in Christ alone saves us. That's not the question, whether faith in Christ alone saves us. It does. We do not need to add anything to Christ. Christ alone is sufficient to save. We'll get to unpack this more later, but we, our salvation is based on the work of Christ. We do not stand on our own work. The question is, what kind of faith alone saves What kind of faith saves? He starts in verse 14 by saying, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? So we're talking about that faith, a faith of that kind, of that sort of faith. And then he goes on in later verses to really contrast a living faith which saves and a dead faith which doesn't. A dead faith, at least in the way that James refers to it here, is a faith without works. In other words, a faith that does not 
produce any sort of consistent obedience to God. I tried to come up with an analogy that would help me get the relationship between faith and works, and then I realized that James gives us one of his own. So why reinvent the wheel? We've got one here uh, right off the bat, or at the end, I guess, of the bat. Uh, In verse 26, he gives us a summary statement at the end. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You know that experience at a funeral when you go or maybe to the visitation beforehand and the casket's open and people always say, oh, he looks good. She looks good, but we all know it's not the same. You know, some, something, it's always a little eerie because something there is, is off. There's, there's something a little strange or unnatural about seeing the body apart from the spirit. And this is what it's like to separate faith and works, that one without the other is unnatural. It is just a shell. It's dead because faith without works, the two cannot be separated. Now, how does that fit with the rest of Scripture? There's one verse that we hang on. You know, this is pressed in my heart. It's one that you memorize. If you haven't already, it's a good one to seek. For Ephesians, Paul writes to the, to the people in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes this starting in verse 8. He says, listen for faith and works here. He says, for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if I can summarize, he says, your salvation, your being saved, has come by grace through faith in Jesus. And then he specifically adds to clarify, this is a gift, not works. Not a drop of your own works adds to your salvation. So it sounds as if he is separating faith and works, something we've just said cannot be separated. But Paul doesn't stop here in these verses. He does not divorce faith from works. He now says, what kind of faith is it that saves us? What does a living faith, a saving faith do? It saves but it also produces work. He says in the very next verse, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were prepared for good works. This is the outcome of a living faith because faith, living faith, and living works cannot be separated. Now, there's a snappy summary. I like snappy summaries that came out out of the Reformation period in in our history. Uh, We don't really know who said it. A lot of people attribute it to Luther. I think it's better, it's closer that Calvin said it. Doesn't really matter who says it. I want to know if it's true, and it's true. Here's the summary. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. Have you heard that before? 
It's a good summary of how faith and works are connected. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, let's look at each of those one at a time. Faith alone saves. That is, faith, if it's living faith, that faith is the mechanism. It's the instrument that unites us to Jesus. And Jesus is the beginning and the middle and the end of our salvation. He needs nothing added to him. So it's through faith that we're joined to Christ. That is, we are in Christ. We don't add anything to that. If we're united to the work of Christ, what other work could we produce that would be more than that? So faith alone saves. And the faith that saves is never alone. That is, if Christ is in you, if Christ is really in you, he has already saved you, he has already given you a living faith, and Jesus will begin a transformation in you that will show up in good works. That's true. Now, some people, Christians, usually Protestants, push against some of this faith-work connection, Uh, that sometimes we as Protestants get so concerned, so caught up in making sure that we don't confuse our works as the source of our salvation. They're not, but we want to make sure that that's protected. Works are not the source of our salvation, but we work so hard to push that idea that we end up sometimes devaluing the importance of obedience in the life of a Christian. We should not forget that the scripture calls us all over the place to faithful living. Calls the Christian who has living faith to also have good works. I could really look anywhere in the Bible, kind of just close my eyes and point uh, and find a piece of this. But Jesus says particularly toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That is, we do not want to devalue good works. We actually want our good works to be seen. This is not hypocrisy. It's not showing, showing off or, or trying to pretend like we're better than we are. It's that these works display the glory of God because they show that our faith in Jesus is alive, is actually effective in us, is actually changing us. That if I'm apart from Jesus, my works will be dead and my faith will be dead. Now, What then does James tell us about dead faith? What does he tell us here in this section about dead dead faith? If we were to just comb through these verses and just take a little list on the side... You might see that there are just some general descriptions about dead faith. He says some overarching things, like it doesn't save. 
uh, that, that a dead faith is no good to you, that it's no benefit to you, that it's useless, he says at one point. But by far the most unsettling description, at least to me, probably also uh, to you, the most unsettling description of dead faith is that a dead faith is shared by demons too. You may have noticed it as we read through it the first time. It's in verse 19. He says, even the demons believe That is, that demons have a kind of faith. They have a kind of faith that's like a corpse, a shell of faith, but it's a a kind of faith. And whatever this is, that's not something I want. I don't want this for myself. I don't want that sort of faith for you. I don't want that sort of thing for anyone. So drawing on this comparison with with the demon sort of dead faith, then in the rest of our time, I want to look at three characteristics we might see of dead faith. Three characteristics we might see of dead faith to help us understand it. This teaching is a caution to us. I know it's not the most happy chipper section, but I know also, I hope, that it will benefit us in the end, okay? So three things that might characterize dead faith. Here's the first. The first possible characteristic of dead faith is assent to truth. Assent to truth, that is, agreement with truth. James says in verse 19, You believe, you agree that God is one. And James says, Oh, you do well. You believe that God is one, you do well. That is, to believe that is something. To believe that is better than to deny the truth or to believe something false. It's better than to say, well, there's three gods or or that there's many gods or that there's no God. It's better to believe that God is one, but the ascent to truth by itself is not enough for living faith. That ascent to truth by itself only puts us on par with the demons. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe Demons, in a sense, can affirm at least much of the Apostles' Creed. They could recite the words of the Apostles' Creed and even nod their head as they go along. They affirm these things as true. When the demons encounter Jesus, they don't say, Who are you? Nor do they say, we don't believe you are who you say you are. When the demons encounter Jesus, they say, we know exactly who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And they're right. Demons know their theology better than you do. Better than I do. You think you know about the doctrines of sin and the fall? (laughs) 
demons help bring those things about. You think you know the doctrines of the incarnation when Christ was born in the flesh? The demons witnessed it. You think you know the doctrines of of God's sovereignty, how he is in control of every single thing? The demons have pressed and tried every limit of that. You think you know the doctrines of eschatology and the final judgment? The demons know it better than you, and they know their time is short and that their doom is sure. Demons even know that Jesus is the king of creation and the savior of sinners. And yet their knowing of these things is not enough to save them. All they have is dead faith. This is not only true of demons. Many humans assent to truth and have dead faith too. There are countless educated theologians in hell. This is not to say that assent to truth is bad. Of course, thinking is good, and we want to believe with our minds, but assent to truth can be a part of dead faith. That's the first. Here's the second characteristic that may also be true of dead faith. The second is emotional impact. Emotional impact. Some people might say about truth, okay, it's fine. It's one thing to acknowledge that the truth is real, but you need more than to just agree. You got to be more than just a brain on a stick who kind of bobs the bobblehead along. You got to feel it. You got to let that truth sink in so that you really get it. But here, James says, even the demons believe and shudder. And shudder. They're, they're not just giving little lip service to truth, not just empty nodding, nodding their heads. They know that these things are true in their bones or whatever version of bones they have. Down in their very depth, the demons feel the profundity of these truths. A person can be very emotional about truth and still have a dead faith. This is not just the emotions of fear, by the way, you know, shuddering and all things kind of connected to that. They, they can also be emotions, emotions of, uh, of joy and excitement. You might remember when Jesus gives the parable of the sower, you know, the guy that's scattering all the seeds and they land in different places, some on the path, some on the good soil, and so on, that some of that seed lands on the rocky soil. And Jesus says the, the seed that lands on the rocky soil hears the word and receives it with joy. Meaning that that person got excited about it and a plant springs up right away, but it soon after withers, he says. That plant is alive for a while, but the faith is dead. We even sing about this sort of thing. Maybe you've noticed it before, maybe not. We sing about this emotional impact in our faith when, when we sing Rock of Ages. Uh, I love Rock of Ages. There's a verse in there with profound. The line is, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? 
So even if my zeal had no end, if I were just so excited about these very good things, or could my tears forever flow, that is, if I were sorrowful, weeping over my sin, the next line is, these for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. The emotional impact, of course, again, is good. We want to know truth and even to feel truth. But emotional impact can be part of a dead faith. That's the second. Here's the third and final one. The third characteristic that we can see in a dead faith is obedience to God's commands. Obedience to God's commands. Now, as soon as I say that, some might go, wait, 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 wait. Isn't that the opposite of what James just said about the connection between good works and faith? No, it's not. James says, faith without works is dead. But he does not say, works or obedience will make your faith alive. He does not say works will make your faith alive. We know demons are rebels of God, enemies of God. And yet in the Gospels, whenever the demons encounter Jesus, every time, without exception, Every time the demons encounter Jesus and are given a direct command from Jesus, they always obey. Always. Even in some sense of their own accord. You know, when, when Jesus commands the legion of demons to come out of the, of the man at the tombs, for example, you may remember this story, they beg to be allowed to enter into the pigs, and Jesus gives them permission. Permission. So when they come out, they go in some sense of their own accord. That is, they obey the command of Jesus. Obedience on its own does not make a living faith. Of course, James wants us to obey. He doesn't want the opposite, where we have a complete lack of of works. In the opening uh, verses of the section 15 and and 16, he says, if if someone's poorly clothed and lacking in, in food, and you say, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them food, what good is that? You know, you see someone in need and go, I'll pray for you. When I have more than enough to help. That sort of lack of deeds, that, that sort of thing uh, produces a dead faith. And at the same time, if you could possibly feed every poor mouth and clothe every needy body and go, check, I obeyed. You know, I, I, I did my acts of charity. That faith may be just as dead as not doing it at all. So if it's true, and it is, if it's true that there are many educated theologians in hell, it's also true that there are many 
faithful soup kitchen workers in hell. That's a sobering reality. So what's missing? If we can have assent to truth and emotional impact and even in some sense obedience to the commands of God and yet still have a dead faith, what is it that makes faith living? James doesn't answer that question for us here, at least not directly. He goes in a roundabout way in this section, so we have to listen to the, fo- the voice of God in the broader context of Scripture. And the best place, at least I think, that gives a summary of living faith and works, what it is that makes it alive, is just four words in the book of Galatians. If you want to turn there, you can. It's in Galatians chapter 5, at the end of verse 6. Let me read the whole verse, and you'll notice the four words at the end. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, here it is, faith working through love. Faith working through love. The thing that makes devils dead. And even the thing that turns humans into devils is not a lack of information. It is not not a lack of passion. It is not a lack even of obedience. At the root, the thing that makes deadness is a lack of love. So it's the, it's the love of, of Jesus that brings us to bow our knees before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not just because we must, but because we delight to. It's the love of Jesus that would lead us to to the good works of feeding and clothing and whatever else, to do these things not out of obligation, but out of devotion. It's the love of Christ that takes a dead faith and makes it a living faith. Jesus does these things. All of this flows out of the love of Jesus. So let me end here with this word. If in these last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, if all of this discussion about dead faith and demons and even hell and the wrath of God. If all of this has made you feel unsettled, maybe a little anxious or fearful because you know your own sin and because perhaps you've seen a lack of good works in your own life and you wonder if your own faith may be dead, 
On one hand, I don't want to just comfort that feeling away. Perhaps the Spirit is working on a dead heart. I do not know. But, whatever the case, let me suggest that if you are unsettled or even fearful, that you ask two things in response. First, ask yourself, do I love Jesus? Ask yourself, do I love Jesus? If you're concerned that you may have a dead faith, don't start by trying to do more good work. Good works are good, but we want you to go to the source of faith and good works, which is the love of Jesus. So ask, do I love Jesus? And whatever the answer to that question may be, whether it's, I think so, or I don't know, or maybe not, whatever the answer, make sure you ask the second thing, which is to ask God in prayer to pour his love into your heart. Ask God to pour his love into your heart. It is only the love of God that can make faith alive. And it's the love of God that will overflow in a wealth of good works which God has prepared for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, we want this to be true of us. As a community and of each of us individually, Lord, would you keep us from a dead faith? Would you pour your love into our hearts to make us alive in Christ? That you would produce good work in us that, that others would see even and glorify you as a result Lord, would you keep us from just being mental assenters or, or, or emotional workers or just raw obedience? Lord, would you make our faith true and anchor it in you? This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.